Welcome to the Truth Perspective. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me today is Corey Shink. Hello, everyone. Today we are discussing personalities, specifically the Big Five. So we want to tie this into our show last week on Insight, as well as a show we did several weeks ago on personality disorders and the personality personality dimensions of personality disorders. But we also want to get into how our personality traits are perceived by others, uh, how they influence things like our own values, and how being self-aware about them can help us navigate our lives. With that said, um, the two of us, well, all of the hosts here on The Truth Perspective, even the ones that aren't joining us today, have done um, Jordan Peterson's personality test, Understand Myself, which is a big five test with... 10 aspects. So these are two aspects each for two aspects for each of the main five personality dimensions that kind of split them up and get a little bit more specific. So we're going to be talking about that and just kind of seeing different connections that can be made and what you can actually do with a personality test and kind of how it how it helps understand human behavior and um, just the the human condition in general, I think. So with that said, Corey, where do you want to start? <laughs> well, I I kind of want to start with the history of the Big Five because there the whole the construct itself has so many dimensions to it that I think that are they're kind of interesting to unpack kind of how they came uh, to be the way that they are today and the different kinds of arguments that. Uh, that were held throughout the forming of the the process. So, you know, this this started back in the in the 30s in the, in America with a kind of a reaction against the psychoanalytic movement that was just kind of lumping a whole bunch of uh, character traits and personality traits into these fairly uh, what we would now call as bogus uh, categories like, you know, the Oedipal complex or thinking that everything that has to do with human nature can be boiled down into, uh, you know, something dealing with sex or with aggression. Mm -hmm. And so these researchers, they decided that the, probably the best way to tackle the problem would be to use human language. So, and this, so they came up with this hypothesis that everything important about human nature, you would be able to find already categorized by humans themselves. Mm -hmm which I thought was a very, just a fascinating hypothesis, just one way of tackling you know, the complexity of human uh, dimensions, all the dimensions involved. Yeah, like maybe we've already, we'd already figured it out and hadn't yeah. realized that we'd figured it out. So then they took that you know, and they boiled it down, and they started with you know, 18,000 different words, and then over the years they kept boiling it down and boiling it down until you got to uh, what we have today is the big five, which, you know, I mean, a lot of people still debate whether, you know, we need more than five or whether five is enough. And, you know, they've, they've added dimensions over the years. But I think that just from the tests that we've taken and from the research that we've read, just even in preparation for this show, that it looks like these five categories are fairly adequate in, in delineating, like, who you are as a person, how you come across to other people. And it's still being updated, continuously updated as people, as they learn the limitations. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you know, over the years, the, uh, all the items used on the, the tests that are, um, you know, the questionnaires, they didn't have enough 
questions concerning the maladaptive natures of certain traits mm-hmm. so that, you know, you if you scored really high on something, you know, maybe you were actually, you know, OCD, you weren't, you know, a highly conscientious person, you had some sort of a pathology. Mm-hmm. And so then they had to start to code for the maladaptive and pathological characters that are, you know, involved in, in personality and personality disorders. Mm-hmm. So that in and of itself it opened it up to a whole new realm of understanding personality disorders. Yeah. And in order to, you know, kind of bring all that into the fold of this research, this huge, you know, burgeoning research network that's, you know, they have this one uh, system, this one model that's, you can't really say it's, it's, it's not really theoretical in the sense that they don't have necessarily a theory behind it. Right. It's just a tool used derived from human language and descriptions of how people come across, who they are, how they function. Mm-hmm. And then using this tool, they're able to find all of these different uh, correlations between brain functioning and, you know, how you're, uh, you know, how long you live, your longevity, all these different things with the with the model itself. But um, so then, you know, with this tool, they're able to bring like, you know, personality disorders and all these other things into the fold. And so it just continues to evolve. Even you know, even today, it's still evolving, yeah. and it's really, really interesting. Yeah, because it covers so much of um, just human nature. Like you, you. It like it it seems to capture it all. Like you can read this and get it like a a very a very detailed description of a person. And when you match that up to someone, you say, yeah, that kind of pretty much describes that person. Mm-hmm. And it, it's pretty remarkable how in depth it can go. And one of the things that really kind of um, impresses me about it is, first of all, like you said, that it's it's not theoretical. It's it's empirical. So it's actually derived from first of all, from a study of language, but then when you look at the results, you find these five personality traits that when you measure you know, any number of people in the general population and you gather all this data, you find like a, a normal distribution, like a bell curve for all of them. So it, it's like there, there's this, the, uh, this level of variation for each trait, and each trait varies independently of the others. Mm-hmm. So it's like you've got this this like combined like probability like distribution so you've got five traits and then you basically randomly assign people to to different um like areas of that of each probability to distribution and you get all this variety so if they all vary independently that just creates a whole bunch of personality variety among the general population so it's not like there are only like three or four personality types or something like that there is like an almost infinite variety of people. Mm-hmm. Well, you can break it down like into greater or lesser degrees of similarity. So, like um, the way that the understand myself test works is that it breaks it down very pretty much into let's see, like one, two, three, four, eight, like nine, um, nine different areas that you that you might fall into in in any given trait. Like you might be very high, high, or very high. No, no, extremely high, very high, moderately high. Um, in terms of your percentage, not your state of mind, and then typical, like average, and then low, moderately low, very low, extremely low. And again, when you factor in that there are five separate personality dimensions, that creates a whole bunch of variability. So, well, first, just 
in case anyone isn't familiar with them, we've talked about them before, but the four, the five traits are agreeable, agreeableness, conscientiousness, extroversion, neuroticism, and openness. We're going to get into each one, hopefully, if we have time, and then the 10 uh, aspects of each. So like agreeableness breaks down, um, you have um, compassion and politeness, conscientiousness, you have industriousness and orderliness, extroversion, you have um, enthusiasm and assertiveness, neuroticism, you have withdrawal and volatility, and openness, you have openness, which is just openness, and um, in, uh, intellect, not IQ, but like just how much your brain works, essentially how interested you are in, in intellectual things. And like you also mentioned, Corey, this is, has been very interesting in terms of looking at it, um, or looking at it in terms of personality disorders once that kind of got factored into the equation. Because when we think of, when we look at the traditional categories of personality disorders, like we talked about several weeks ago, and then when you have this five-factor model in mind, you can see, okay, you've got this personality type, right? This disordered type. It seems, they seem, people with this personality disorder seem to have these features. They seem to be this kind of person. Well, you look at the personality dimensions and, and, Funnily enough, coincidentally enough, they pretty much match up. So even though that the like the old personality d- disorder um, categories have have kind of fallen in disfavor because they aren't empirically validated, because they aren't um, you know they're not they're basically not a good model. At um, the positive thing, or you know the thing they had going for them is that at the very least they. You, you could fit them into the into a model after the fact to make it more accurate and more valid. Mm-hmm. So like you said with the example of like extreme conscientiousness, well, okay, so you have an obsessive compulsive person. They're like extremely orderly and extremely like compulsive about their, um, you know, the order in their lives and, and in their environment. And that is one of the personality dis- dimensions. And then you have something like agreeableness where if you go to the very bottom of the, of the, per, of the, probability distribution and so like the top two percent or the lowest two percent in agreeableness which would be the top two percent in disagreeableness like peterson mentions in the in the results of the of the test though that pretty much explains criminality like chances are well most criminals are are going to be disagreeable in nature so and most criminals are antisocial they would have been classified as antisocial personality disorder now um, like we talked about in the personality disorder show, it seems like several of the of the personality dimensions have a pathological element to them, where it's like maybe either there's too much going on. Well, we don't really know what it is. If you just have, if you're just in that like super high percentage of of that personality trait, or if there's something like biological going on that that's interacting with that, we don't really know at this point for most of these personality disorders. But they seem to to cluster around like one um, personality trait. So for like the, let me see if I can remember some, for like the the neurotic, for the neuroticism um, dimension, you have personality disorders like depressive um, and um, I think, yeah, depressive and what's the the withdrawal one? Like it used to be called aesthetic. Um, Is it the schizotypal or the schizoidal? um, I think that one falls into the... um, agreeableness or extroversion actually i think okay i i can't remember exactly i'd have to look over find the the papers i was reading but basically you know there are four basically four because i don't think they found a a pathological dimension for openness 
I think that's the only one that didn't have a uh, like an associated personality disorder. But what I found, just one thing I, th- I found interesting that I hadn't thought of when we had the previous show on this was that in Ponderology, um, Lobachevsky discusses this. Again, he uses some of the, the older like methods of describing, uh, well, the o- older categories for describing personality disorders. But he makes the distinction, like, so there's these various personality disorders, but then there's essential psychopathy. And he uses the word, like, essential to describe it. This would be, like, the, the ultimate personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And this is what we just call psychopathy these days. But like I mentioned in last the last time we talked about it, for, for Lobachevsky and for a lot of the European um, like psychologists and psychiatrists, they just use the word psychopathy in the way that we use it to describe personality disorder, basically. So if someone had a psychopathy, they had a personality disorder, and then there were different types of psychopathy, which we would call different personality disorders. But we've inherited the word psychopathy for one specific type of personality disorder, the one that he called essential psychopathy. And it seems that essential psychopathy or just psychopathy is associated with several um, personality traits. So this would be extremely low like agreeableness, extremely low conscientiousness, um, um, pretty high extroversion, and really low neuroticism. So that's four different dimensions where like you ha- like if you if you take someone with those four like high high traits on those three and low on neuroticism, you get a psychopath, and it pretty much makes sense if you think about it. You're like, I could, I haven't done this yet, but I'm thinking about doing it. Like taking one of these tests and pretending I was a psychopath. Like, okay, based on what I know about psychopathy, mm-hmm. I'm gonna write these down. And so when you read some of the descriptions of the traits, I mean, like, I'm just gonna go to conscientiousness um, and read some of the things on here, and then just to make this point. So in the test, he describes. Um, he calls conscientiousness the primary dimension of dutiful achievement in the Big Five personality trait scientific model. Conscientiousness is a measure of obligation, attention to detail, hard, hard work, persistence, cleanliness, efficiency, and adherence to rules, standards, and processes. Well, you might be able to make a case that some psychopaths like have an attention to detail, like if they're like serial killers and they're you know good at their job in quotes, <coughs> but. Um, um, but really, the traditional like definition of psychopathy, and if you look at like the case studies, psychopaths are notoriously unconscientious. They're not good workers. They'll do anything to get out of doing work. They think work is below them. Well, that's probably just their their rationalization. Like, so they don't do work because they're unconscientious. But they come up with the reason. It's because works works below them. Like works for suckers. They're not going to do anything. They want someone else to do the work for them. So when you have a psychopath a psychopath in the workplace. They're going to man- manipulate other people to do the work for them, and then they're going to take credit for it. Like psychopaths don't actually do anything; they don't really create anything. They're not very creative. They might they might be good mimics, but but you know that's mm-hmm. it. And so so one of the ways of thinking about this, like for the people who might think that there's got to be more to it, and maybe there is something more to it, but maybe for so maybe for those who think that this isn't really a good way of thinking about personality disorders or or psychopathy in particular. Just think if you can imagine a psychopath who is extremely agreeable and extremely conscientious and extremely neurotic. It's like that that person would not be a psychopath. No one would think they would they would be a psychopath. They couldn't be because, but like by definition, like agreeable people are um, compliant, nurturing, kind, naively trusting, and conciliatory. Mm-hmm. It's like you you won't find those personality traits in a psychopath. 
So um, just one interesting, you know, one more interesting thing to come out of this research. Um, do you have this? Yeah, I was just going to uh, touch on what you say. If some people don't find it uh, you know, satisfactory to describe psychopath psychopathy in this way or personality disorders or what we would, you know, some people would say just evil people in general. And I think that touches on the difference between the system that Lobachowski and even, you know, therapists and a lot of clinicians use uh, when they're using the, the DSM, you know, to diagnose versus this, uh, this, this method. Uh, which is basically a difference between, you know, typology versus the trait system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, you have, if you have a, a psychopath or a schizophrenic or a schizoid or someone with OCD, um, you know, the, the older way of theorizing about that was that those are distinct types, mm -hmm. distinctly different entities. They are in and of themselves distinct entities. And, you know, you when you look through history, you can see that sort of mindset, that schizoid is completely, is just, it seems like a distinctly different thing. When you look at somebody who's extremely pathological, you think they are a distinctly different type of person. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the, I, and I think that there's some merit to that. I really, I do think that there's quite a bit of merit to that. But the, when you look at the trait system, what this manages to do is to isolate what it is that makes them that different type. Yeah. Yeah. So you're able to take all of the, you know, like the modern uh, or one of the newer uh, tests uh, questionnaires for the for the Big Five model has uh, six different facets for each of the five. Um, categories. So there's six different facets for openness and, and you know, so on and so forth. So, th and, you know, they continue to, you know, evolve this so that they can capture all of the different diagnostic criteria you, that you would need in order to understand somebody who is, uh, or the different things that make someone a psychopath mm -hmm. or that makes someone a schizoid. And so the, you know, it, there's a lot of utility in that approach just because then you can see, um, you don't necessarily have to think of the psychopath as just a, uh, just a personality disorder. It's just a, another end of the spectrum or whatever. You can mm -hmm. think of them still as a distinctly mm -hmm. evil person, yeah. but then you can, at the same time, you learn what it is that makes them evil. Yeah. And you can look, then, then you can, as a tool of research, you can look into how that impacts, you know, genetics, how it's inherited and so on and so forth. It makes it a, a much more useful tool, I think, mm -hmm. than, than seeing them as just distinctly different. Yeah. Oh, and it's just more practical in in so many different ways, like, um, well, for diagnosis, for treatment, for like for the various different types of personality. And when you know the, like the type, you can, um, you can perhaps come up with interventions or just like life strategies for different type of people, because something that works on a neurotic won't necessarily work on a psychopath. Well, we know it doesn't. And uh, so we can figure out what works and what doesn't work for certain people. And especially for like the mental health community for um, like in diagnosis, because like I mentioned, the, the current like DSM categories and I think it's the ICD in, in Europe, like they don't, well, no, I think the ICD one has might have been updated recently. It might be more accurate. But for years, for like decades, it just didn't work. Like you'd, you'd, you'd get all these different psychiatrists and mental health professionals diagnosing people and you'd look at all of their diagnoses and none of them matched up they overlapped like they it it was totally useless when you look back when you actually look at the data their cat their system of categorization was useless because it didn't work like even if by chance they, some of those things were correct 
they it wasn't practical to actually put it into use because they couldn't actually diagnose the people who had these personality disorders correctly. So, I mean, what's the point of having it if it doesn't work? This is uh, at least um, the most kind of... Um, um, the most well, it's the most it's the most practical because it it's the best that you know the com, the scientific community has been able to come come up with to be able to accurately like assess someone's personality and then you know hopefully do all those other things like treatment or um, you know when when it comes down to institution in, institutionalization or um, you know uh, prison or whatever. Um, but maybe just to to move. Onto a slightly different aspect of this talk, I wanted to to mention one thing that I've heard Jordan Peterson say in regard to this uh, into the into the Big Five that was totally new to me. So this was something that I hadn't thought about, I hadn't encountered, I hadn't seen anyone else say say something similar. And so after the first time hearing him talk about it, just mention it. You know, I've been thinking about it, and then I've heard him say it several times after that and kind of expand on it. And now I'm really starting to think there's something to this thing. So what he says is basically, he talked about it in terms of compassion. So compassion is one of the aspects of agreeableness. And he basically said, compassion is not a virtue. And, and I'd always thought, oh, well, I, I always thought it was a virtue, you know, that uh, the compassionate people were just better people. And because, the, you know, um, well... But he, his argument was that, well, no, it's just a trait that you were born with, essentially. You have no control over it. And in fact, there is a negative aspect to compassion. Um, because, like he mentions, look at the most compassionate, um, well, look, take an example of extremely high compassion, that, like a, mother, a mother's love for her child, um, or you know, a mother bears compassion for her cub. Well, that compassion can easily turn into like bloodthirsty madness, um, and demonization of anything that is perceived as a threat, even if it is not a threat. So there, th that's one of the interesting things about this is that there, it's not like any personality trait is totally good. Like there are good and bad aspects to having a like a, a trait anywhere on the spectrum for any one of these traits. So um, like for maybe I'll just go through and see if I can come up with some examples. Like so for agreeableness, agreeable people will tend to basically allow themselves to be pushed over. They won't fight for themselves. They won't negotiate for themselves. Of course, disagreeable people are more likely to um, have people not like them because they're rude, they're, they're blunt, they might be more violent and aggressive. And um, like conscientious people, conscientious people might be so conscientious that they are like totally disgusted by other people's lack of conscientiousness, lack of orderliness. They'll be um, extremely like moralistic about... Um, people who aren't like them, um, people who don't live up to their standards, and then extremely low conscientious people will be total slobs and not take care of themselves and um, like um, not put not put the effort into you know um, making themselves and their environment better and like you know working for their future, etc. Like extremely extroverted people can just be really annoying. Extremely introverted people can be really annoying. Um, just to <laughs> It's not a very good description, but uh, um, actually J.P. Sears had a, a good couple of videos last week or the week before on extroverted and introverted people, which really kind of nailed it, how, um, you know, um, either side of the spectrum is, can be just very selfish, and, and introverted people tend to think that extroverted people are like jerks, and then extrovert, extroverted people tend to think of introverted people as just kind of weird. Um, 
And then, of course, neuroticism. Um, if you're extremely low in neuroticism, you might not be risk-averse enough to to avoid taking or making really bad decisions, making really impulsive decisions. And extremely neurotic people, well, they're they're at risk for like anxiety and depressive, um, you know, episodes, or they just like um, you know, extreme depression. And then like openness. Openness is the creativity dimension. So if you have people who aren't creative at all. Well, creative people might see that as a loss, you know, like, oh, I can't, I can't imagine not having creativity or, or an appreciation for music or art or poetry or novels or whatever. But then extremely open people, um, like very creative people um, might, well, they, they like novelty and new things and creativity so much that they might be overwhelmed by it to the point where they can't actually do anything about it. There's just so many interesting things that they want to do and that they're interested in that they can't focus and to actually do any of them. So they're just kind of like these like flighty artistic people who never actually get anything done and never actually put their creativity to a you know to, to a use that f- follows through to like completion. Um, but basically, to come back to this compassion thing, it's like so compassion is not a a, a virtue, you know, because well, <laughs> the way he put it in the latest interview I, I heard with him is that um, if you think about or if you look at, at compassion, he basically says compassion is only useful for to to use on um, people who are six months or younger. <laughs> it's like, that's the only time that compassion is appropriate. Um, because after that point, you, you, can't, you can't be totally compassionate. You need to be able to, to be a little hard on people. Like You need to have a little bit of disagreeableness in order for people to learn to become resilient and to, to learn to live in the world. Otherwise, you just coddle people. And... And that's one of the worst things you can do for a, a kid, for a child, or for an adult, you know, um, to just let them be lazy bums their entire lives, essentially. And com- so compassion has its place, and it might even be, it might, well, it is, it can be a good thing in certain contexts in, in combination with other, um, well, traits and like situational, um, um, like the, well, in different situations, you know, having to do with more than just your personality traits, like the actual context of the of the situation, but just compassion itself isn't a virtue. So I was thinking about that in 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 other ways. It's like okay, so because I, I think that maybe it's just a certain personality type that sees virtuous people or sees like the ideal person in a certain way. But like I think that at least culturally, you know, we tend to think that. Um, well, maybe I'll, I'll I'll just take my perspective as a Canadian, right? So, from my perspective of being a Canadian and seeing Canadians, it's like Canadians seem to value agreeableness over disagreeableness. I think that's pretty likely. Um, you know, politeness over impoliteness. Um, you know, and compassion, of course, and like conscientiousness. People tend to value people and admire people who are hard workers as opposed to people who are just lazy and want everything for free. Right? I think that's pretty universal. If it's not, then that would be a surprise to me, and you know, maybe I'd be totally willing to be surprised. That would be fun. And then, like extroversion, well, it's harder to say about that because, um, um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought about that one so much. And then neurotic neuroticism, like low neuroticism, like tends to be, I think, an ideal, like to be relatively stable, like to have someone. Um, well, that's why we have like a mental health, um, like. Uh, industry right is to deal with people like that we we consider extremely neurotic people to be mentally ill or to you know to have a mental health problem otherwise we'd be 
elevating like depressives and anxiety and you know anxious people to like the top of our um, you know social hierarchies, which we don't. And then openness again, that one it's like you know some yes, some no. I mean we do we do value culture and creativity. Um, well, actually, yeah, I think even even then, like well, tying this back to last week's discussion of like the the generation of the self of the you know the me generation. It's like uh, it seems to be that that educators and parents want to like um develop the creativity in every child right to mm-hmm. for you to find your creativity and so there's art classes for everyone and music for everyone and uh, and all this stuff when chances are like 90 95% of kids won't be that interested well maybe not that many well no 90 95% of kids won't be talented enough to actually make anything of themselves in those areas because like the the people who are art creatively and artistically successful are a tiny minority um and you you won't be able to change that like you can't take a person who is zero percent open and turn them into the next michelangelo like it's just unrealistic it's not going to happen and so the idea that you can like form your child into an artist is is ridiculous it's like you can find the talent you can nurture the talent um, but to actually create it out of nothing is impossible. So we tend to value certain traits, but really what's the value in having a trait? Like I'm talking like on a higher, on a higher level here, what's the value of just being born with a trait? Right. I mean, the value of it is what you do with it. Exactly. So, and there's things you can do no matter what trait you have. Like I was mentioning, there are positive and, and negative aspects to, to any score you get things to work on um, and, and uh, yeah, things to work on no matter where you are. Um, despite what the, you know, the, just despite the kind of cultural stereotypes of, of the ideal personality, right? And it may, be, it may be that that personality type, that there's something to it that is worth working towards, but um, taking into account the negative aspects of those, of those traits. So I think about like Dabrowski's model, where he talks about his overexcitabilities, which has some overlap with the big five. I'd be interested in seeing uh, like a, a study that really kind of got into that and to see if a big five might be a better um, way of describing like um, Dabrowski's overexcitabilities or if, or, or, or if, or if overexcitability is like another, um, another thing, like uh, aside from personality traits, like there's something about overexcitability that then, um, like works in concert with personality traits because he talks about things like um, psychomotor overexcitability. So this would be like kind of like ADHD, like a lot of physical energy to do things. And so that doesn't seem to be captured. Um, maybe it is. I haven't seen um, you know any correlations with the with the personality traits with the big five, but maybe there is. But then he's got like um, um, the how does imaginative overexcitability, which would be openness, like creativity. And then intellectual overexcitability, which would also be an aspect of openness, the intellect, and emotional overexcitability, which would be um, like a, an aspect of neuroticism. And um, what else? He's got uh, emotional, intellectual, psychomotor, imaginational. I think there's one more, but I'm just blanking on it right now. Um, so there might be, you know, there might be an aspect here, and and it might be that the like as person. Well, no, I think it is that as personality development, you know, progresses, you will find that a, that people become more agreeable, because, um, but not because they were necessarily born that way, but because that, you know, in in, in certain contexts, that is, 
Well, you get, um, you know, I'm trying to think this through kind of on the spot. Like you, I, I'd think that at, with personality development, it comes like knowledge of all types. And if you understand all types of people, then first of all, nothing shocks you. And you won't be very, you won't necessarily be extremely like moralistically judgmental because you understand why, who they are and why they are the way they are. And it's like, kind of like the Buddhist perspective of, you know, well, what can I, what can you do about it? And well, that's just the way nature is. So why judge nature? Um, but at the same time, you still have a, a moral hierarchy, like a, a, a hierarchy of values. You can see why people do certain things without condoning it. For instance, you, you like want something that someone does will be absolutely against your hierarchy of values, but you know, it won't, um, you won't necessarily be enraged that, but that, that this person is doing this thing because you're not responsible for them. You see what they're doing. You understand it. You want, you like, you know, like in your conscience that it's wrong and that you wouldn't do such a thing, but, um, you stop, ha- I think having the impulse to, form other people in your image and wishing other people would be like you. Right. Which kind of goes right back to that, uh, what we were talking about last week with, with awareness, Mm self-awareness and the awareness of how other people see you. And then not only that, but the awareness of the different types of, of psychology that are out there and how it's ridiculous to, you know, to hope for this equality, this total equality. Everyone is like me. And then if anybody, you know, if I'm an introvert and someone's extroverted, then they're, then they're just fundamentally flawed and and evil. And they're just, you know, out to bully me or, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's, uh, Reading the about the the big five and you know taking the tests presents an opportunity, I think, to see the personality as as a sort of a tool, you know, to be able to see you know where the you know you fit into the world around you and where you could fit better, especially in regards to you know neuroticism, extroversion, um, conscientiousness. I mean, all of them really, but then also how they combine, mm-hmm. you know, if you have very low conscientiousness and very high openness, you're, you know, you're artistic, you have all of this ability, but you don't apply it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look and you're able to, you're, you're able to look at it on a piece of paper, you know, you're able to see, you know, this it's charted out and it's yeah. like, well, that's why, you <laughs> know, my, I'm, uh, I'm a starving artist, you know, I mean, or you could be high conscientiousness and, you know, high openness and, you know, no extroversion, no agreeableness. Mm -hmm. And so you're not able to, you're not smoozing with anybody. You're not out there getting your, your art or you're, you're not publishing it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. people don't even know that you exist. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it just presents this opportunity to look at your personality as kind of this universal human, you know, just part of being human, this dimension of, of yeah. being human that can, that can be developed. And, and it can, I mean, I think, you know, that's the reason why we have therapy. That's the reason why, uh, you know, we have books like insight and programs you know, towards uh, developing insight and different levels of your personality is because it's possible yeah, and it's desirable. And that's, you know, it's probably, you know, if you want to do anything in the world, anything with your life, you know, this kind of awareness is fundamental. And you need to have a system, I think, in order to really slot all of these perspectives. And what better way to, or what better system than one that's been tested on thousands of people all across the world? Yeah. And while you were thinking about that, I was, the thought came into my mind that this is what actual, like, diversity is and inclusion, like, uh, a deep understanding that people are very different 
along uh, and they're different in along dimensions that are um, like testable and like you can actually get an idea of why and how people are different and so for people who make diver diversity and inclusivity their like uh, catchwords their catchphrases their their slogans um, are they really it's like because um, it seems like their their kind of moral frameworks are designed around certain personality traits. Like I only like people with these certain personality traits, and um, and everyone else is Hitler. And so now some of those people are Hitler, right? Because some of them will have personality traits like Hitler, and so that becomes a societal question of where we draw the line, essentially. Like what kind of behaviors. Um, are do cross the line, and how do we deal with that? That's a separate issue. But when you're looking at at someone who's just like um, like you know an orderly person who who's interacting with someone who's disorderly, one of Peterson's bits of advice for relationships is like there are certain types that don't mix very well. So if you have someone who's extremely conscientious and someone who's extremely unconscientious, that's not going to be a good match because there's it's going to be a constant source of conflict in the relationship, and. So if you have someone who just writes off everyone who is a lazy slob as a worthless human being or a lazy slob, I think that's part of my personality coming through, coming through <laughs> then uh, you know, it's not productive and it's not, it's not realistic and it's really kind of a, like, a judgment of nature where there shouldn't necessarily be one. Um, <clears throat> and I, to finish the point I, you know, I started making about personality traits not being virtuous in and of themselves well what would be virtuous well for me personally like now after thinking about this um things have become a bit more clear for me so for example i'd have more admiration for an extremely disagreeable person who does a very disagree a very agreeable act who like really struggles to actually be kind to people in certain situations and do something for others than i would for just a person who's agreeable being agreeable so it's like, what's the effort in just being agreeable if you're agreeable? Like, there's there's no eff there's no effort in it. There's no work in it. They haven't um, they haven't overcome any obstacle to do so. So for the same reason, you know, I would admire a, a, a very agreeable person who, in a certain situation or a certain set of situations, is very disagreeable. If you know, if in that circumstance, in that situation, it is appropriate, because that shows the inner struggle that's going on and how they are going against. You know, they're not doing what is easy, I, and I guess that's what it is. Like I can't have much admiration or respect for someone who just does what's easy. So, um, and, and also the one of the points that uh, that Peterson makes, well, and his colleagues in this test, because it's not just him alone who made this, is that um, you know each trait. Um, well, I'm just going to read from the introduction, like the first the thing that introduces before we you actually get to the big five. He says that remember each personality trait and aspect and your relative position with respect to them has advantages and disadvantages it is for that reason that variation exists in the human population there is a niche for each personality configuration much of what constitutes constitutes success success in life is therefore the consequence of finding the place in relationships work and personal commitment that corresponds to your unique personality uh, personality structure so basically, there's an aspect of like you know finding your place, finding your fit, to tie that back to insight, but also of um, just the fact that all of these personality types, you know, all these individuals have a role to play, 
Now, it may be a destructive role, and that would be the example of the case where we have to draw societal lines. But on the more kind of average level of you know where you find the most people, um, you can't just draw the line in the middle of you know 50-50 humans and say this 50 good, this 50 bad. Um, th it doesn't work like that. Each has a role to play. Like you know, for instance, you've got entrepreneurs and you've got managers, right? You need both of them. You can't just say one personality type is good and the other one's bad. And so you can look at each of these traits and find that. So like, um, of course, um, most cultures have an appreciation for like the openness dimension, right? Because these are the people that create, um, you know, all the great works of literature and art and uh, science. You know, everything that we consider really to be culture, you know, um, uh, architecture, architecture, um, you know, sculpture, paintings, novels, great scientific books and works. And um, on all of these things, you can find that there are, that there are positive things about them. Um, and, you know, even disagreeableness, right? Because there's a time for being disagreeable. And I think some of the greatest moments, you know, in history, when you, when you, when you look back, like the, 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 the stories you read, or, you know, if it's recent enough, the, you know, the, the videos that you can watch of, someone like you know standing up to a bully and this could be like a corporate bully a government bully you know they're putting on a disagreeable act there it, it is it is a disagreeable thing to get up and criticize you know a power that is greater than you because it is the right thing to do and it might mean you'll lose your life because of it and for an agreeable person to do that like that takes an, an immense amount of courage you know a level of courage that most people don't have so that would be another thing i'd be i'd be interested in a study of like actual virtues like courage you know which isn't just um you know the absence of fear it's you know doing something despite the fear um i'd be interested in seeing um, a study on you know the development of virtues and how that relates to, to personality traits like the big five because yeah i don't know that's something I haven't looked into. I don't know if that's been done. I don't even know if there's like a a, a re research literature on actual like virtues. Yeah, I, I had wondered that too. I personally wondered where virtues fit into this whole idea, into you know this. If you're trying to fit this theory into your head and and you know and kind of making it inform other areas of you know what you understand. I was thinking. Uh, I was reading about this kind of a theoretical model. Uh, for the big five and it combined early temperament research uh, that was going on you know in the 20th century about the different temperaments of children and how that and how you know parents would interact with them and how they would interact with their peers how their peers would interact with them based on their temperament and they they uh, were able to coalesce their findings into the big five uh, very easily and so they had surgency for extroversion, you know, for, you know, the kid wanting to, you know, be loved and hugged and, you know, playing and all that. And, you know, so on for the, the rest of the, the traits. And, and so it provided this powerful evidence uh, along with, uh, you know, like twin studies and tw uh, identical twins separated at birth that, that a lot of, if not most of our personality is inherited in its temperament. But when you look back on thinkers like, you know, Benjamin Franklin and his list of virtues, you know, he didn't consider his temperament to be a part of his desire for virtue. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't, he just kind of, he said that was God given, yeah. which today we would say that's 
genetically endowed. It's part of our inheritance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't have really much to do with the inheritance, you know, that we get. It's mm-hmm. just given to us. That's mm-hmm. and um and so but the the role there is between temperament temperament and uh, the big five, the big categorical traits, it, because in between that, in between those two levels, is uh, what they call characteristic adaptations, which would be your specific way of adapting, of using those traits, of interacting with the world, of behaving on any given day-to-day basis, and the kind, and that where really your individual genius, I think, which shines through. You know what's unique about you. What what differentiates you from the rest of people who have high conscientiousness. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you look at. Um, I mean, because you, you know, I guess one of the drawbacks about this specific system is that, you know, if I score a ninety six on conscientiousness and a 96 on openness and a 96 on whatever, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, St. Thomas of Aquinas scored the same. You know, let's mm. say you just two mm. people in history scored the same, and they have, but their individual genius is completely different. Yeah. Well, I think that's where, uh, you know, this characteristic adaptation to the environment, your own particular genius and IQ and other things would factor in. And mm. allowing for uh, a way of seeing personality as this, like I said, like a tool, but it was something that we just are born with. But then through, all throughout life, we're going to be shaping it. It's going to be shaping us. And not only is it going to be shaping us, but since it's just really a heuristic, it's a tool, what we're really looking at is how the environment, how other people shape us, how our own choices shape us, and how we can categorize those in order to really understand, even, you know, at least on a superficial level, how our actions uh contribute to, you know, our life events, our outcomes, what we want and what we don't want. And how much of that is, like Benjamin Franklin said, just God-given. But then, depending on, you know, what we do with that, there is room for virtuous, some sort of a study on the different virtues, how you apply those traits, I think, on a day-to-by-day basis, which gets into, I think, the realm of things like insight, you know, different tools that people use in order to cope with stress in order to, you know, facilitate dialogue in order to solve their individual problems um, that are mediated by, say, your conscientiousness, conscientiousness or extroversion, but they're also highly specific to you and what you can accomplish, what you can do mm-hmm. based on what you know. Yeah. Well, tying that back into Dabrowski, who we talked about several weeks ago as well, in his theory, he talks about the first two factors you know the first one would be the biological and in that would be would include like personality traits your inheritance like what the way you're born what you're born with second factor would be society and how how society shapes you like the ideas and values that it, it implants in you on top of your biology on top of on top of your inheritance but then the third factor is the autonomous factor that's the you that chooses um and the you that chooses often um, often against the first two factors. So doing something against your biology, against your inheritance, against um, society. Now, there's no, there's no virtue in, in and of itself in either of those, like just going against your biology or your, uh, or your society for the sake of it, because 
you might be going against society um, in a negative way. You might be, you know, violating some societal norm that just makes you um, a criminal as opposed to, um, you know, a, a, a moral person. Or you might just be, um, you know, uh, doing something against your biology against your biology that just has no higher purpose. You know, no, it, it's just for the sake of it. You know, like maybe fasting. Like just fasting doesn't make you a saint. Or, you know, just, you know, abstaining from sex doesn't make you a saint. Um, it might be a useful skill and both might be useful skills. They might be, you know, some things like that might be healthy in certain situations, but, you know, it doesn't, you know, again, it doesn't make you necessarily a better person. There's something else there. It's like, it's, it's more on the development or on the level of, um, well, it's in a much wider context. And I, I wrote an article this week on um, on nationalism where I kind of touched on this um, when I talked about, uh, again, like something that Peterson said about, you know, what you value most is your God. And so when you look at what people value the most, like how big their sphere of values is, the sphere of the things they, that they value and, um, and therefore, um, you know, the sphere in which they operate for, like in, the sphere in which their aims are their, and their values and their decisions and actions, the sphere in which those things operate, the smaller it is, like the more selfish you are, right? And the the more expansive it is, the the people who have in like a more a more expansive sphere of values are the people that we tend to admire the most. That would be like, for example, why Gandhi and Martin Luther King are revered as you know great people, because their their spheres of values weren't. Uh, strictly limited to like themselves, for instance, or just their family. You know, they might be a decent person if they're just, you know, Martin Luther King might have been a, a decent person if he was just concerned about his family, but no one would know about him. And he wouldn't have much of, an, uh, of, a, uh, of a wide influence or effect on other people. But for, for, a, people, for a person with like a very wide sphere of, of values, the, it, it becomes more universal and the more people are encompassed in it to the point where, you know, what you do um, or the choices you make might be determined to a great extent by the greatest number of people. So when you do something, you have in mind not only yourself and your family and your community, but humanity as a whole, now and in the future. So what when I, what I'm going to do, like the, the choice that I have in front of me, I, I want to make that choice in a way that will be the best for everyone for all time or for like the foreseeable future. And if you can do that, it will be recognized, and you will you will gain recognition for it. And if you're just a, on, on the other hand, if you're a person in a in a very visible position, like you know some leader of any country, who um, just by virtue of that position has uh, an audience, you know, a global audience, you can look at a person like that, and uh, uh, well, you can look at a person like that and make a very harsh judgment. And that can probably be a correct judgment. If you see a person, a leader, who is like a demon or who is just a, a selfish, like incompetent, um, like clown, that uh, that can be seen too. But then again, you know, as I said that, the first thing that came to mind is Trump. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, uh, so but those those so on the uh, I'm just, I'll just say on the other hand, those perceptions can also be influenced and wrong. So again, that's just complicated but there there is a like as a heuristic there's an average right where people do seem to be able to recognize great great things about people but on the other hand um not everyone will recognize it mm -hmm. i guess that's what i'm trying to get at 
like with Martin Luther King, of course he had tons of people who hated him, right? But uh, at least now from, you know, in our culture where we are now, and maybe just by virtue of the fact that he, that he has been like um, sainted to a degree, you know, it's, it's politically incorrect to say anything bad about Martin Luther King. And, but it may also be um, um, just incorrect to say certain bad things mm-hmm. because of you know the the, the virtues involved and the, the the actual accomplishments and um, um, you know the actual message. So, I mean, my thoughts on that are like all over the place just because there's so much to it, and I you know I haven't really narrowed it down to specific features. But yeah, well, like we've discussed on other shows, you know, the in going back to the original question about you know if there are any studies scientific studies on virtues and and you know we've discussed the fact that you know, science can't really tell you what you should find virtuous right, right. there's yeah. the the virtuous world is mm-hmm. is fairly unknowable you know it's i think that's probably one of the biggest problems with the enlightenment and you know science uh, especially scientific materialism is that you know we we think that everything can be known you know, that's kind of one of the impl- implicit assumptions is that everything can be known. We can discover everything. We can research everything. We can know everything. Mm-hmm. But there are still elements of the universe that probably, I mean, cons- you know, considering any uh, s- sort of time span not extended out a quadrillion years, that we will never, you know, we'll never know. We'll never understand it given our our mental capacities Mm -hmm. and there is something ineffable about you know virtues and you know that particular individual genius something that draws us to to act in such a way that you know we go against our our self-interest but you know that's you know the the virtuous life is something that's so pragmatic and so uh wise and and you know that it's just beyond our ken, you know, that we still revere certain figures who act in such a way that that it at the time seemed ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's when against everything anybody knew, or and you know that it seems so destabilizing or uh, and so wild. But at the same time, it was so wise and it was so intelligent, and it completely shaped the future in a way that was beneficial for everyone. You know, there's some element there acting, you know, beyond just normal human, yeah. whatever, personality, well, I guess. Well, I think that, because uh, you said these these are things that we may never be able to know. I'm not sure about that. We may never be able to know it in certain ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. Like, if you define knowing in terms of, like, scientific categories and the way that science is done, you know, as scientists describe it, then, yeah, I'd agree with, I'd agree with that. But perhaps there are, perhaps there are other ways of knowing, and perhaps there are no actual limits to knowing. It is just that uh, it it may just be that we're so far away from you know that's such a far off goal that we haven't taken the steps necessary to that level of knowing. But um, but I think there are definitely things that we that we know that we don't know we know, and <laughs> that um, and things that we know that uh, that we know in different ways. Like, um, like for example, um, Collingwood in, in his book Principles of Art talks about um, art as being a type of knowing, and that is the the knowledge of um, um, the knowledge of experience. So, like you you know what a certain experience is like, and that's that's we use the the word like knowing. We use knowledge that way. 
So like, uh, you know what it's like to, to feel fear, for instance, to be, to be afraid. Um, now that isn't a, a scientific type of knowledge, right? It isn't a, a measurement. Like you don't, you don't know which brain cells are activated and which hormones are released in your body and, and which nerve clusters, um, you know, pick up the influence from those, from those hormones and chemicals and translate to them, them to your brain. Like all that goes on, um, you know, under the surface, we have no knowledge of that, no scientific knowledge of that, but we know what it's like, what we know what it's like to feel fear. And that's just a very simple example. I think there are all types, all sorts of things that we know in a similar way. And, and at least one aspect of virtue might fall under that category to the extent that, um, when we, when we are virtuous, when we do make the right choice, we might know that that is the virtuous choice to make. We might like we in that instant we might know that virtue. You know that that makes me think of just the difference between, uh, you know, just like say for example, on any given day, you know, if you you get out of bed in the morning, you don't have a scientist there to tell you that okay, so if you do this, you know, the results are fifty percent this, you know, twenty five percent that, mm-hmm. you know, so on and so forth. The science you can't have an exact scientific description of everything that you do, yeah. but. You know, you do have, like you said, a different level of knowing where you make the best decision that you can. And I'm thinking specifically of like historical figures, you know, major historical figures, you know, like Caesar, um, you know, making these huge, taking huge political risks without any guarantee, you know, but, but doing it based on what they believed was the best thing that they could do for the most amount of people, mm-hmm. given what they knew and what they could do and doing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no, there's no one there to, to give you the insurance check, you know, when it all comes down, you know, when yeah. it all fails. But, you know, that that knowing or that ability to, to, to act uh, with knowledge is seems to me like is uh, one of the most fundamental uh, virtues. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it right now. I don't remember if it's prudence. I can't remember. Um, but but I think that when you look at like a virtuous person and you know how they operate in the world, there's there is there's that different level of knowing that has that own personal genius that you know Socrates might say is a voice you know that bid him no yeah. don't do this or yeah. no don't do that. But it's just a higher form of knowing that you said is com- is completely different than or not not completely different, but higher, more immediate, more direct mm-hmm. uh, than you know the any sort of book learning or yeah it's not it's not abstracted right yeah it's a, yeah it's a it's a felt knowledge it's a it's a direct experience so like when you when you pick something up like you you have a direct experience of it like a, a scientific explanation of you picking something up will be an abstraction you know the cells and the atoms basically atoms touch other atoms and you know move in four-dimensional space or something it's like that it's an abstraction, and it's a t- it might it, it might be useful in certain contexts, but not in every context, and certainly not when when you're you know in in an actual situation of an actual human. You know, it doesn't when you're reaching for a glass of water, it doesn't matter that you know what the chemical composition of each of the materials is. Um, you just you know it's water, you drink it. Um, so like there's a there's a place for abstraction. And, and it is highly valuable. Like all of our science and technology depends on it. 
but it's a certain type of thing and it is an abstraction um, but there are more direct ways of experiencing and knowing and um, you, you like you mentioned Socrates and uh, up a, a couple other examples well um, like Peterson would call it meaning it's the it's the direct felt experience of of knowing that you are in the right place at the right time doing the right thing and that is there is an experiential aspect to that a recognizable feeling uh, a recognizable knowing for when you're there for when you're in that flow state and um <clears throat> yeah so right and then there's a high amount of unknown in that too and i was reading about some of the neuro neurobiological substrates of personality specifically like dopamine and serotonin written by uh people who are you know he heavily cited jordan peterson's work um and, and their basic theories uh, the basic theory was that you could group the big five into two categories, two fundamental categories towards uh, stability, and uh, which would be, I think it was conscientiousness, um, agreeableness, and neuroticism, and stability, just like your personal, keeping the order, mm -hmm. your personal order, and then plasticity, which would have, which involves uh, openness and extroversion. It's, you know, outward seeking and you're facing the unknown and i'm not 100 percent sure that that you know that that would work in such a way but i think that the fundamental biology that they're talking about especially in terms of dopamine is sufficiently uh, uh has sufficient evidence in the literature to show that like dopamine in the brain is is geared to 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 you know to to staring into space to looking into to seeing the stars but not just physical stars but being able to imagine mm -hmm. and to you know think critically and to visualize and that when you're facing uh the unknown uh, the author writes that there's a high amount of uh of, of psychic entropy which he would say that the that psychic entropy is is at its highest when you don't know where you what is happening or what you should do and it's at that point in the that it places a lot of stress on your on your brain mm -hmm. and so the harder it is to answer those questions the the more likely you are to crack to lose your stability mm -hmm. so i think that you know developing your personality in, in you know so many ways is what it takes to get to that kind of a level of of wisdom of knowledge of facing the unknown and you know as uh, i don't think we've talked about it in shows before but there's you know there's specific ways of doing that and it's never to shirk you know the irritable factors of existence or to avoid triggers or mm -hmm. to avoid any sort of trauma it's to face those kinds of things and to develop the the nerve you know quite literally yep. to to face it and to not to not blink, which is, you know, mm -hmm. tremendously difficult for a human being because yeah. we're just tiny little, like rabbits mm -hmm. you know, in the face of the crocodile of existence. Yeah. So, um, so vulnerable. Yes. And, you know, it's, it, it really amazes me. Every once in a while when I'm just walking somewhere, maybe in the grocery store or along a sidewalk, the thought will come into my head of just how vulnerable my body is and how amazing it is that people aren't just dying all the time like to a greater degree than they already die all the time um like in the same thing while driving it's like look at all these cars just hurtling around and look at just how how soft our bodies are you know it's so easy to just be torn apart in any given situation 
and it's so easy to tear each other apart. That's why I'm like, it, it's a, it's amazing that um, uh, it really, it. I think about that in when I'm also when I'm thinking about you know the the atheism theism like debate, and um, and how there really is something like very hardwired in us about um, like a rudimentary morality, like that that has a, a long you know millions of years history, to the point where we're not just all the time um, tearing each other apart when. For for trivial reasons, there are periods of time where that seems to happen, you know, more often than not. But like, just walk down the street and be amazed that everyone you see isn't, you know, ripping you to shreds. Literally, it's like, how how do we manage that? Why why, you know, why aren't we just tearing each other to shreds? Um, and I think that the 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 scientific explanations are go some way to answering that question, but they don't encapsulate it for me. Like it, it, it never. It's never satisfied me to like as a full explanation for why that why that is the case. Right. But and uh, I think wouldn't yeah. Jordan Peterson even say that it's not necessarily has to always be the case that I mean you can right. I mean you look through history right. and you can see societies where now everyone's just tearing each other apart, mm-hmm. you know, quite quite literally sometimes, yeah. you know, civil war, uh, you know, the world wars. Yeah. And you know, it's not the case that we don't uh, you know, if science says that that is hardwired into us because of group selection or natural evolution, that's not not the case at all. That there is another, there's a something, another assumption, some deeper assumption about life that is higher, you know, more sacred. And then mm-hmm. people want to do away with, you know, sanctity or, you mm-hmm. know, because it's, because it's associated with mm-hmm. some religious uh, tradition that they don't like, yeah. uh, then it's, you know, what they're, they're really asking, asking for trouble. Yeah. Well, I want to read just uh, some things I highlighted from uh, from Understand Myself. Um, just interesting things that I found in there. Well, maybe bef- first, before I do that, one other one other thing that uh, struck me um, was the fact that um, one of the things that annoys me about psychology books, especially like pop psychology or like, you know, not necessarily self-help books, but um, you know, books about, but yeah, yeah, kind of pop psychology self-help, like you know how to deal with shame and guilt and uh, and you know childhood trauma and all that stuff. Is that when you look at the personality research like this, you should very quickly realize that there are only really, well, well, those books seem to apply to a small percentage of people, but when you read those books. They they are written as if everyone is like this. It's like, um, oh, you can't shame your child. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that. Oh, this type of experience will be just devastating for a child. They'll grow up racked with guilt and shame. And uh, they basically, um, what it comes down to is that they, even if they aren't explicit about it, implicit in all those books is this idea that human nature is totally malleable, and that uh, that we're all malleable in the same ways. So. Um, so if this certain situation happens, you know, it's going to result in this type of neurosis when you grow up. This comes back to, you know, like you were saying about the, the how this research even got started. It was a disenchantment with like the Freudian theories and various psychoanalytic theories like that. But when you, so when you look at the big five, it's like there are pretty much two categories of people that come into therapy. People who, who are highly neurotic and people who are highly agreeable. 
and they come in because because they're racked by guilt and shame. Well, also maybe people um, who are high in um, some degrees of or some aspects of conscientiousness because they also feel like uh, um, like self contempt and shame and guilt. But it's the it's it's not everyone, you know. Not everyone is even susceptible to like a, a deep depression or you know anxiety disorder. Um, and not everyone is so agreeable that they're they're getting pushed around in in the world. It's like that. That's why I like Dabrowski so much. Is that he he didn't take well. Okay, I like Dabrowski a lot. I'll get into that in a minute. First of all, I think that the reason that a lot of these books are like that is because when you when you are a, a therapist or a, you know a psychologist, the only people coming to into your office are a certain kind of person. So you might get the the impression that all people are like that, or at least that a lot of most people or a lot of people are like that, when it's actually not the case, because you're only getting the people coming into your office who have you know those personality traits that make them susceptible to those types of mental problems. But there are a range of other kind of personality types that never go to therapy for various different kinds of reasons. And that's the reason I like Dabrowski so much is that he took uh, like a grand view. He wasn't just looking at the people who came into his office. He was he wanted to explain all of humanity, you know the the all all variations in human nature from the top to the bottom, from the left to the right, and um, that's that's just one thing that really irks me about those types of books. It's that it's there's so many assumptions that are going in there, and and all of the empirical research shows that. You know what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for other people. It's it's just a basic uh, like axiom of um, like science and life in general, and that's why so many people read these books and are so <laughs> devastatingly disappointed yeah. when it didn't work for them. Yeah, it's because well, it's not going to apply. Um, yeah, so that was just one observation I had there, and again, that comes back to what we were saying at the top of the show about the about the adaptation of the big five model to personality disorder research is that it can have a, an actual like therapeutic or an, an actual positive effect in the diagnosis and treatment of various types of mental illness. Not all of them, like, because I think um, like there are some um, mental illnesses that don't fall into the big five, like, um, you know, like schizophrenia, for instance, that's not just a, as far as people can tell, you know, there is a biological component and it's not just an extreme, um, you know, one or two traits or something like that. But um, to get to some of the things that I wanted to read, I, I really recommend if you haven't done the test, do it. I mean, it's cheap. I think it's like $10. And it's it's just very useful, not only for getting an idea of like yourself, becoming a little bit more self-aware, you know, learning where you're... Um, you know where your flaws are and where your strengths are, and and learning, um, you know where your efforts might be best put to use in um, like in your career and your relationships, etc. Um, but it, like like we've been saying, it also gives you an uh, gives you a wider view of humanity at large. And so for each one, um, they give examples of where different types of people fall, like where men or women men and women differ on certain personality traits and like where liberals and conservatives differ so for instance uh, liberals are higher in the aspect compassion in agreeableness and conservatives are higher in aspect politeness which i thought which i found interesting 
because you you wouldn't at least I wouldn't have thought that intuitively. I would have just thought, oh, you know, compassion and politeness. Well, those that's the you know that's the Canadian, right? So so oh, they must all be like liberals or something, liberal Canadians. But no, the conservatives are actually higher in politeness, um, which was interesting. And then he says that, um, um, however, alliance with the category of belief that okay, politically correct people are uh, you know particularly high in compassion. What this appears to mean is that agreeable people strongly identify with those they deem oppressed, seeing them essentially as exploited infants, and demonize those they see as oppressors, seeing them as cruel, heartless predators. Now, the like we've said, there's problems with every you know personality trait. The problem here is that that is essentially um, that essentially leads to atrocities or can lead to atrocities. Because when you perceive someone as a threat, and when you demonize that potential threat, that perceived threat, and you see that uh, that threat as a as a heartless predator, well, what do you do with heartless predators? You put them down. Now, the problem with that is that how do you know it's a heartless predator? You know, maybe it is. Maybe that person is a heartless predator. Maybe that group of people are are, are all heartless predators. But do you know? And when you don't know, that's, you know, well, that's what leads to atrocities, like I said. It's what leads, like, when you have a, a group identification and when you presume guilt before innocence. That's why we have a justice system. And that's, the, like, the way the justice system should work. Um, yeah. So, um, highly polite people tend to be deferential to authority and are generally obedient. Again, not a psychopath. <clears throat> um. Yeah, did you have anything else, Corey? I might find some more quotes, but uh, maybe not. About the uh, the politeness, the politically Just correct. Anything? Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so I'll just read a couple more then like the con so we talked about like the good things about conscientious people i mean their need to organize future oriented reliable not easily distracted they get work done but on the other hand um they can be prone to guilt they're susceptible to shame self-disgust and contempt but they are also judgmental and easily disgusted by their own moral transgressions as well as those of others well, that was interesting um yeah, maybe I think that um, everyone should just kind of do the test and find the their own gems for themselves. They're Remembering that there. there's a niche for every personality out there. Yes, which is one of the the nice things about this is you know if you've been trying to fit the the round peg into the square hole for however many years, maybe there's just a different, completely different niche. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I've that I never really thought about that has kind of gelled for me over the past couple of years is um, getting an appreciation for like the other side of the political spectrum. Because um, I've always considered myself on the left, right? That's Well, that primarily is, is where my uh, personality traits lie. But I'm also high in conscientiousness, with, which can tilt me you know, to the right in certain um, areas too. But I didn't really have an appreciation for the conservative mindset. One thing that really helped was reading Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Righteous Mind. But uh, and with that in mind, and with like um, the Big Five research in mind, it's kind of 
like it's made me um i wouldn't say more tolerant but more understanding you know i can see where people are coming from now and um and i can see more clearly the the flaws on my own side you know on my team and that's one of the the real dangers of identity politics is that you're blind to to your your own team's flaws and all you see are the flaws of the other team like you can't see their positive uh their positive traits um you can't see the value in anything that they do and you think that everything that you're doing is valued valuable like you can't see when you're being a total you know um expletive or when when you are harboring um uh like disagreeable elements within your flock and that just leads to problems so i think maybe if we are searching for things to say that might be a sign that we should uh call it a night call it an afternoon or a morning wherever you are what do you think cory Call it a wrap. Let's wrap it up. Okay, so thanks for tuning in, everyone. We will be back next week with another topic about something we don't know yet, but we'll come up with something, hopefully. So thanks for tuning in, and see you later. Have a nice week, everybody.